<laughs> Thanks for joining us today. I'm Tim. I'm an alcoholic. Hi, and I'm Rusty, and I'm an alcoholic, and this is Children of Chaos. Morning, my friend. Good morning. Take it away. Yeah, thanks. Today we're going to be talking of codependency. It runs rampant in most, I'll say most, every alcoholic addict family that I've ever seen. It Now, when I say that, codependency didn't come about, or the word codependency didn't come about until the early 70s. When it first started, they looked at it like this only happens in alcohol, alcoholic and drug addiction families. But through research and family systems work, they came to find out that it is in every home. In the recovering community, we just happen to have abundance of it. So the two people that, that I've asked to, to be with us today, both long-term sobriety and long-term emotional. Do you have emotional sobriety, Corinne? Oh, yes. <laughs> yes, she does. You can. You can. <laughs> so Corinne is here today, and my friend Jonathan is here. So I'm going to ask them each to uh, just say a little bit about themselves and codependency. Jonathan? Thanks, Rusty. I'm Jonathan. I'm an alcoholic, and um, I'm uh, soon to be 75 years old. Ooh. I've got 34 years of sobriety coming up, and I am truly an alcoholic addict and codependent because uh, codependence doesn't, doesn't happen in a vacuum. <laughs> it happens in systems, mm -hmm. and um, I think that's important to know that people just don't get struck with co with codependence. They right. learn codependence. They learn who they are, what they are yes, in the you. system. So anyway, I, I've been around. I'm from California. Uh, in my childhood, was California, Northern California, San Francisco area. I've had three marriages, maybe five significant relationships. I have five children, four of them I know. I have seven grandchildren and one great-grandchild who I've never yet met. That's coming up soon. And um, I'm uh, dependent. I'm my, my emotional sobriety and maybe even my true sobriety is dependent upon me going to meetings regularly. And so at least six meetings a week, mm -hmm. sometimes more to be around the people that are my tribe, my family, that I didn't, I didn't have. I, we're going to talk a lot about, I guess, families and family systems because yes. that's how this thing starts. But I had one that was so screwed up that it didn't even feel like a family. It felt like an ordeal. Mm. I went through an ordeal that I finally got out of it, and my family I found with you people. Mm. So that's pretty – and I love dogs, and I only have one leg. All the way down. That's to the, recent. All the way down to the ground. Yes, I had to have my foot cut off because of a surgical mistake, and um, it's probably was right on time for me because I, I see it as a really an asset rather than a hindrance. I mean, it changes my life, but um, I'm not one of those naturally humble guys. <laughs> So it, it, it helped me. It, helps, it continues to help me when I want to get up and start running and doing stuff, uh -huh. and it slows me down or I fall over. So, and um, I just want to say this. Yeah, I'll say There it. was the front door. I was sitting, and the front door 
yard people were outside with two blowers blowing, making mm-hmm. up quite a fuss. This is when all the leaves were down on the ground. And I was going to go out there and just look at them and just mm-hmm. go, you know, how far along are you? I opened the door, mm-hmm. and there was a rat coming. Because he... <gasps> You know, oh it was a big God. rat, yeah. and he had been under the leaves, apparently, and he was running towards safety, right towards me. So I kicked his ass with <laughs> my right foot, Uh-oh. and I landed right on my back in my ass, because I only got one foot, and that's the one I was kicking him with. I kicked him, too. I kicked him all the way across the yard. Wow. Right past one of the leaf blowers. Oh, great. And right. I'm laying on the ground, and I'm laughing to myself. I go... You know, that's just perfect. <laughs> this is just perfect place for me to be in my oh, life. Oh, God. Okay? I love it, man. So, you know, I if I had it. two legs, I'd kick with both. But you know, <laughs> anyway, I'm really glad to be here to talk about um, one of my favorite subjects. Yeah. Good to have you here. Thanks. Also, uh, Corinne and I both were there when, when Jonathan made his journey through the whole operation beforehand and... I tell you, it, to be there with him and see all the different personalities and the the fear and then the recognition of this isn't going to get me, it was something. Corinne. It was. <clears throat> I'm Corinne, and I've been around the rooms of Al-Anon for 33 years next month. Wow which is a miracle of miracles Amen. because I literally was coming for six weeks to audit the course. <laughs> <laughs> and that is not a joke yeah. <laughs> because, see, I was the one who knew. Mm-hmm. I was the one who knew. And all I needed was a little bit of the information you had available, and then I could take that with me and go out and conquer whatever I needed to conquer. Mm-hmm. Um, here I am, 33 years later, and uh, it's a lot about what Jonathan had to say. It's it's about I found a community, mm-hmm. uh, and I found sanity, and I found authenticity, which was a real new thing for me to encounter authenticity like that. Because uh, I grew up in a house where everything was about appearances. Uh, so that being able to be who you were, and actually tell people who you were. First time I ever had to tell my story in a meeting, I thought I was going to have a heart attack and die because you don't say those things uh, to people. And because mm-hmm. once they know, they know, you know. It, and that was a whole lot of my codependency was about protecting that image, you know, and that all of that, oh, oh my wow. goodness, all the, all the effort I put into things that amounted to nothing, <laughs> except they certainly disturbed me a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, over a lot of years. I'm so grateful to be in these rooms. I grew up in uh, Arkansas and moved to Oklahoma about 18 years ago, and it was one of the best things that's ever happened to me. I, uh, that's part of my story, but um, I'm glad to be here, and I'm really glad that I have some awareness today about what codependency is. I had never even heard of it till about 1990. The way I heard about it, and this is... <laughs> A little bit embarrassing, but I was dating a guy, and I broke up with him. I was divorced at the time, and he sent me a newspaper article after we were broken up, and it was about Melody Beatty's book on Codependent No More. Mm -hmm. And, of course, my reaction was, well, how dare you? (laughs) Excuse me. Don't you know who I am? But I bought the book. 
it just kept getting my interest. You know, I kept thinking there must be something to this. So I, I bought it and I read it. And that was the beginning of my journey in learning about codependency. Mm-hmm. That's about it. Yeah. You know, that was mine also. Whenever the book came out, and I had just started in working in treatment centers, and that book just was, I thought, was phenomenal when I, when I first read it. It still is. So anyway, and, you know, Corinne has, like she said, been here 18 years, and I tell you, she has played a major role in the success of mine and Julianne's uh, marriage. You know, there's times that I'll call her and go, hey, this is going on. What, what do you think? And I, I always get to hear what I need to hear. And Jonathan's the other go-to person for me. And between the two of them, or, or individually even, there's a lot of wisdom. And I thank you both for, for all that you do for me in my life. As I said earlier, we're going to talk about codependency. And I'm going to give you a short uh, rendition of what codependency is. It says, codependency then, as a dysfunction, as a dysfunctional pattern of living and problem solving, which is nurtured by a set of rules within the family system. Now, Jonathan and I, our our sponsor, Gil Baker, he was a therapist, and he called them sacred rules, family sacred rules. And I'm going to read a few just so that you guys can kind of get the feel of of what we're going to be talking about. People that live in, in these families have difficulty in actually identifying their own feelings. They also have difficulty in forming or maintaining close relationships. Now, here's a big one for me is the perfectionism. That's huge. It's always been huge for me. We have difficulty adjusting to change. We have feelings overly responsible for other people's behavior and their feelings. We have a constant need for others' approval in order to feel good about myself. We have difficulty making decisions. I worry too much or think too much about what to do, and so I stay stuck. And lastly, that basic sense of shame and low self-esteem over perceived failures in my life. And you wrap that all together, and you get codependency. When we are growing up in these homes that we all grew up in, and we're gonna, that's one of the things we're going to discuss, is that we take on these different behaviors. And when we take these behaviors on from the family of origin that we grew up in, and this is where I, this is where I got it all, is right there. And I take on these personalities. I take on a different personality, really, than who I originally came on the planet to be. And through all that learned behavior, I take that, and by the time I'm 17 or 18 or whenever I leave home, I take all that belief system with me right out into the world. And I think, in my mind, this is all the way you're supposed to live your life because I had no other concept of what it should be but the way that I grew up and the people that taught me They were given the responsibility of teaching me the right thing or the wrong thing. Anymore, there's no right or wrong. It's just what it is. So I'm going to ask Jonathan to start us out with how it was for him. Well, I was was adopted in, um, I think, late 1949 in New York 
in upper, it wasn't in the city, but it was somewhere near the city. And uh, I was adopted uh, to a guy that was a, went through World War II as a naval lieutenant uh, in the Pacific. And a woman who was quite beautiful and, as I found out, quite narcissistic and unstable in many ways. Mm -hmm. And I have very little memory of my early childhood. What I do remember is my mother thought she was a movie star and my father was not available on any, in any way. He's a guy that would come in, kiss my mother, my adopted mother, and then I didn't see him. Well, he was still going to school and uh, all kinds of things. So I didn't have a family life that I knew of. And I was young. I didn't know. And the palette, the palette of emotions were very, very sparse. There was very, very colors on that palette. There was mm -hmm. anger. There was narcissism. There was that kind of stuff. But there was no depth to feelings or relationship. I do know that there, everybody was required to look a certain way inside the house and a different way outside the house. Outside the house, we were all on stage. And I learned that. I did learn that. And so eventually we moved out to California. They adopted another child after I was about six, who they called him my brother, but there's no way he was my brother. Mm -hmm. He was just another body in the house. Mm -hmm. And I learned a lot from these people. I learned that the primary emotion that I could recognize was anger, Okay? And rage. Mm -hmm. I could learn anger and rage from the man. From the woman, I could learn posing and posturing and dis dishonesty. Publicly dishonest. I mean, she would lie about things in front of other people. Mm -hmm. Like one time they had a dinner at the house, and you know, there's these frozen pies that she bought, and she served them. And this one lady said, This, this pie is wonderful. Rachel, did you make this? And she said, Oh, yes. And she looked right at me. When she said it, because uh -huh. she knew I knew. And she kind of smiled like, shut up. <laughs> Don't say anything. And I didn't, but I thought, oh, you get to lie to make uh -huh. yourself look better. Uh -huh. So, and then I had the perfectionist stuff was dumped on me. Mm -hmm. Even though they weren't perfect, I was supposed to be. And I was a hero in the family for her. For her, I was going to go out and be the doctor of the family and make a splash because I was so smart and so special. I was so smart. And, so, and my brother was not so special. He was, he was just, well, Joshy is, yeah. And the brain, he's, not, he's just not the smart one. Mm -hmm. I was the smart one. And the old man didn't want to have anything to do with me at all. He's yours, Rachel, okay? So I learned how to be ignored, and that's okay in the family. He could just be there. And she was constantly looking for me to, and everybody else to recognize how special I was. And I didn't feel special. Didn't want to be special. They told me how smart I was. I didn't feel very smart. And uh, I, as soon as I got old enough to recognize what I was doing, I got in a lot of trouble. And I got in a lot of trouble because I got attention from the man. The man would actually pay attention to me. He'd come home from work. And they said, you got what? You got kicked out of what? And he chased me around and beat the shit out of me. He knew how to do that. That was our, that was our bonding. <laughs> it was our closeness. And the woman would uh, constantly try and get in the middle of it. 
Mm-hmm. Stanley, stay away. Don't, don't, don't. And he'd push her out of the way and come after me. Mm-hmm. So I learned all this stuff. And the, 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 the other boy in the house was irrelevant. And it got, I, I acted out more mm-hmm. as I got into high school. And uh, she continued to see me as the star in the family. And he thought I was the biggest screw-up he ever met. He didn't really want me around. And he kicked me out of the house early, too early. Legally too early and too early as far as my immaturity went. And uh, I went out. And just to fast forward, I used all of the tools I learned in there. I was a chameleon, Mm -hmm. a really good chameleon. I had not only undergrad training but graduate school training. And I went out there and I figured out what you wanted. And if I wanted something that you had, I would be whatever it took to get it. And I rose up in the business world because they go, man, this guy's a rocket star. Just like, just like she said I was. Mm-hmm. Except I was dishonest all the time. And I was surprised that I never got caught. I kept thinking, they're going to find out about me. But there was enough of me that was good at what I did. Mm-hmm. I couldn't even tell what was good. So fast forward again. I finally got fired because my drug addiction and all that stuff, and I was given a company to run that brought me to Tulsa, Oklahoma, and I was sober. I'd already been divorced twice, had these kids that I had no idea how to raise because I had no model on how to raise kids. And so I'm here, and I'm running this company as president of the company, and I was really doing well, and I was in sobriety, so I didn't lie very much. And I thought, well, this is odd. Maybe I was good all the time. I didn't know it. I didn't know it. But then I found out I didn't like it. I didn't like the job. I didn't like mm-hmm. where I worked in refineries and with welders and pipe fitters and trades. Mm-hmm. I didn't like it. And so the first time in my life, and I was about seven years, when I was a few years sober, when I made the decision, I think I'm going to try and find out what I'm supposed to do here. I've been sober for a while. I know how to do things more honestly. Not honestly all the way, but more honestly. Maybe I'll try and figure out. Maybe my life will start at that point. And parents were dying. The brother died. They all died eventually. And I'm the, I'm the only one left standing. Mm-hmm. And, and um, I've, for the first time, I've had peace. It Really, peace was something I'd never had. So I was always looking to, you know, that my dad's saying for me was, stay low and keep moving or they'll get you. So, you know, I learned all these rules. I learned from the mother that you could lie. If it did what you wanted it to do, you could just do it. And, and, and actually, that did work. I got a question. Of course, this comes up for me because I, I dealt with this also, is that I was so close with my mother, and she had a lot of influence over me when I was in the home. But that didn't end when I went out into the world. And when I started doing some studies, I, there's a thing called emotional incest. And I know that you know about this. Would that be, were you at that point? I mean, were you that deep into it? Well, yes, there was emotional incest from her. Yes. From her. From her. I didn't accept it. Right. Um, I did not accept it. So my, my, my go-to emotion was anger. I would just push her away, you know. She would always tell me how wonderful I was and I was going to make a difference in this world. And it was all lies to me. I didn't feel like I was going to make a difference. I was just trying to stay safe. I I wanted to be at at the top of the business hierarchy because that's where you're safe. 
you're not safe down here, you know. Everybody could jack you around. So I figured if I could get up there, it didn't matter how I did it. I had money and I had prestige. That's good enough. And there was no integrity. There was no such thing as developing character. There just wasn't. So when I got into intimate relationships, I was bankrupt. I had no idea what to do. Those women would look at me. They fell in love with me, and they would look at me and want to have intimacy. And I'd just go, oh, no. <laughs> no it's, just, it's enough that we're sleeping together and we have kids. I don't want to do any of that stuff. Mm-hmm. And I don't want you to share that stuff with me. So those marriages don't last. They don't. They, they don't. want stuff like that. I know. It blew do. my mind. And I never saw it in my family of origin. Oh, it's not my family of origin. My family of origin was an unwed mother. Right. Okay. And this is the family, the substitute family, taught me a lot. You know, I learned from a therapist, your families will tell you what to do and what not to do, mm-hmm. who to be and who not to be. And I learned the things that worked in that family, and they were awful things. I said I didn't, wasn't raised in a family. It was an ordeal. Thanks, Beth. Yeah. Corinne. Yeah. Um, family. Today, I look back at the family that I grew up in, and I'm, I'm really grateful for a lot. There were some really good things about the family that I grew up in when I was young. I was, I was the hero. As soon, by the time I was five years old, they were taking me to be tested for things because they thought I was unusually smart. Mm. Uh, and I can remember them coming out of one of the testing things and telling me I could do anything. I could do anything. What I heard was, I can make anything happen. I didn't hear that it was so much about me, that I could do anything. There was a disconnect, you know, there, which got me in a lot of trouble over the years. But I was treated well. We had a really lovely house. We had lovely neighbors. Right up until I was in junior high school, everything was really pretty normal. And... I did learn that the most important things were what I call the three A's, which is achievement, approval, and but it's all about appearances. Mm-hmm. That's it. Mm-hmm. Appearances is the other one. So what you appeared to be was the most important thing because that's what you were judged on out there. It had absolutely nothing to do with who you really were. It was who you had to present to the world that you were. <clears throat> when I was in junior high, I was at home one day, and um, my, we lived in an L-shaped house, and my brother and dad were in one end of it, and my mother was at the other end of it. And I went to that end for some reason. I was usually hanging out with my brother and my dad. And my mother was in bed, and this is the middle of the day. And she called me into the bedroom, and she's laying there with a shotgun on her lap. I knew how to shoot. I went shooting with my dad. Guns were a normal thing. My dad had lots of guns. He he was a collector, like I am today, and he collected antique guns, all kinds of things, but this was a real, this was a shotgun, and she had the box of shotgun shells right beside her. Now, my mother had no idea how to load a gun or how to shoot or anything. She had no uh, experience with any of that, so she called me over the bed, and she said, now, do you know how to put this in here, and I said, no, ma'am, I don't. I don't. Let me see if I can get some help. And I turned around and walked to the other end of the house and went to my father and said, something is very wrong with mother and you need to go take care of it. 
And that was the very beginning of me recognizing that things are up to me. Mm. They're up to me. Did my dad take care of it? My dad took all the guns out of the house. Mm. Did he help my mother? Did my mother get any help? She did not. What I learned when my mother was 82 years old was that she had been on tranquilizers for most of her adult life. From the time I had been born, she was on tranquilizers. Mm. And before that. Uh, so she seemed like a perfectly normal person. She was calm and, you know, nice to be around. And once she she decided cold turkey to go off of tranquilizers. Let me tell you what kind of an experience that was. Mm. It was scary. It was really scary. Uh, and my dad didn't get her the help. She, I mean, I could see in junior high school she needed help. You know, something was really wrong there. And uh, there was no help. You didn't ever go get help because what would people think? if they found out you were going mm-hmm. to get help. Yeah, and so that message was really implanted. So my dad wasn't stepping up and doing what he was supposed to do. My mother clearly couldn't do what she needed to do. So guess who it's up to? Mm-hmm. Yeah. The, hero, the hero, the smart one, mm-hmm. you know, is supposed to. And I figured out that they didn't know, and I didn't know either, but I figured out that I could figure it out. That's what, I mean, I've heard in the rooms of Al-Anon, Figure it out is not an Al-Anon slogan. <laughs> it's, it is not, trust me. Um, but that's that's the message I got. It's up to me to figure it out. So that's what happened to me in the family of origin. That and the fact that you can't trust people. Because I walked into, I was on the, be- the phone with my best friend, walked into the kitchen where we had a different landline. By accident, I just told my friend that I was talking to to hold on for a minute. I heard this weird noise on the phone, and there was my mother listening to my phone conversations. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she did that from then on. And I could tell, I could hear it when she would pick up. And so we would have a code about what to do. But I learned that you have to be very selective about who you trust, uh, and usually not women. So that, that set me on a completely different path. So mm-hmm. I had to be the one who knew, and then I couldn't trust women, so you couldn't ask anybody. So, boy, is it really up to me. So that's what came out of my family of origin. A lot, didn't it? A lot, yeah. Yeah. You guys that are uh, listening, you can see that we've got three different families that are different in their origins, but the behaviors are all the same. And how we take on, I can remember uh, when I was about 11, and me and my mom were pretty inseparable. And she took me with her uh, one day, and she met Mr. Jones, who Mr. Jones was her boyfriend. And, of course, she was married to my stepdad. And But what came away from that is that she told me, she said, Now, honey, this is between you and mama, and you don't tell anybody else. This is our secret. And now, you don't know this at the time that it's happening. The effect that it had was that my mom is the best mom in the world. I love my mom dearly. And if your mother will do that, any woman will do that. And from a young age, I I became a womanizer. I was never uh, monogamous in any relationship I was ever in. And you always left them before because they were going to do something to you. So you better leave them first. So that's just one thing. The other thing that was so pronounced in, in my home was there was so much rage 
my mom and dad, my mom and stepdad, they would, I mean, they would go toe to toe. I mean, I've literally seen him knock her across the front room, but she'd get up and go right back at him. And when you're a child and you're watching all this, it's like this moving picture and, and it's recording every bit of that in your mind. And there you are, and you, you're, I mean, I was full of fear. I didn't know I was full of fear. And so by the time I was 15, me and him were fist fighting. And what had happened for me is that I took on this rage. That's what I took out into the world, not realizing any of this, but all those behaviors, all that secrecy. Some of you may have not have heard of this, by the way, but it's called emotional incest. It's not like the actual physical incest, but it's emotional, which is a lot of damage in itself. So all three of us took this out into the world with us. And when we got married, and all of us have been married, I've been married four times. I win. Huh? I win. I know you win, you got five. <laughs> yeah, but I haven't met my future ex-wife. Yeah. <laughs> no. She's out there. We took on these different roles, and you know, we put labels on it, and I wanna, I'm gonna put some labels on this because I want each one of us to, to kind of get a general feel of when we're talking about it. You know, you get your enabler, which is usually the Al-Anon, usually, and then you've got the hero, you've got the scapegoat, you got the lost child, you got the mascot. All this is forms into codependency, every bit of it. I was the hero of the family until I got sober, mm. until I met Gil Baker, actually, and I was about two and a half years sober when I met him. And I, he set me on a totally different course. And that's when I was no longer the hero of the family. You know, I was the oldest. People would come to me with their problems. I was still my mom's confidant, believe it or not. You know, I'm almost ashamed to say this. Every woman that I really married, my mom had to approve of her, even today. Mm -hmm. But it was, it was the truth. So you think about all those things. And I ask you guys out there, think about how you're conducting your life and what you want to do with your life. And I can say this because I've lived it, is that through therapy and the 12 steps, you can change your life, no doubt. I want to talk some too about the victim, or the more more uh, realistically, the victim role. Uh, Jonathan, would you start us? Yeah. Well, <clears throat> my own personal experience with the victim role was because my mother was a narcissist, so she was either you know she was the princess and then always victimized because nobody ever recognized how wonderful she was, but. For myself, I never played the victim role in the family. I, mm -hmm. I did that outside the family. It worked for me outside sure. the family. Did it work in your marriages? Yes, it worked in my marriages, but I used it. I didn't know I was doing this, but, but I used it strategically. It would get me out of a jam, you know? Right. <laughs> I didn't do that. You laying that stuff on me, you know, I'm really a great guy, and and I do all that charming, manipulative stuff, mm -hmm. and it would work. Yeah. It would stop. I do you know, know. Stop the attack, and then I could do the charming, manipulative stuff, and 
and the fight would be over. Okay, and we'd go right back to the normal stuff, which was, you can love me, I can't share anything with you. <laughs> I'm not telling you who I am. Stay low and keep moving. Don't let them catch you. Yeah. Because if they catch you, then you'll have to actually get vulnerable, and getting vulnerable is dangerous. And it's like when the old man was chasing me, I didn't want to get caught by him. Mm-hmm. You know, I just kept running, and he would somehow catch me, and uh, then it would hurt. So yeah, and I, I, um, I'm attracted to victims a little bit, mm-hmm. women, women that have that victim stuff. If they're a little bit helpless, I might maybe take on that my dad's role of helping. You know, I, I know how to solve that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If you're looking for a victim and you get one, then you go, well, how do I get rid of them? <laughs> God, they, they will stick to you like glue. And uh, it's hard being the Savior. You know, if all of a sudden you put yourself in the role of the Savior mm-hmm. for this poor victim girl, woman, and then you have to be that Savior. Mm-hmm. That's a lot of work because mm-hmm. the victim doesn't want to be saved, really. Right. They just want people to work at saving them. <laughs> they really want to get saved. So, you know, I try to, I mean, I've played around with most of the roles. Mm-hmm. Most of the roles. The only role that I never really took on was the lost child. Mm-hmm. I, that was, my ego was too strong to be the lost child. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you, know, you are going to pay attention to me one way or another. Yeah, one way or the other. Yep. Now, yeah. my brother was very comfortable in the lost child. He was lost and he never got found. Well, we see the victim every day that we go to meetings. That's right. Corinne, you wanna? Sure, I, my, my victim role was a little different mm-hmm. um, because I was the self-sufficient one. And that was true in, in work uh, and in endeavors, I'll say. The self-sufficient one was always available there. However, the victim role came up in relationships because I had had this really traumatic experience with my now husband, Merlin, when I was in high school. And it was so traumatic that it completely destroyed my self-esteem. I mean, it wasn't like it damaged it. It just smashed it to bits. Mm. Because in the world that I lived in back then, appearances were everything. And everything was a secret. You know, so the things that happened to me and Merlin, I'll just I'll just tell you, um, I got pregnant when we were dating when I was in high school and he was in college and ended up having an illegal abortion at that time. Well, back in 1966, you Mm. might as well just stamp a a Mm. red stamp on your head and go forward in life from that point forward. If anybody Mm. knew, because the social group that I grew up in, that would never have flown. I mean, that was, that was, that would have been dreadful. So I was damaged through that because my family wouldn't talk about it. My mother wouldn't even speak to me mm. for a long time. I learned later that was a relief, but at the time it didn't feel like it because I needed somebody to talk to about what was going on. I had no one and I could tell no one. So it was just this huge sense of shame and no self-esteem. So going forward in relationships, because my, our parents told us we could not see each other, and that was a barrier that at that point in time we could not overcome. If you knew about me, you wouldn't like me. So the appearance thing had to carry forward, but the shame was there underneath all the time. So 
you don't make real good relationship choices when you come from that place. Because what I needed was for you to really like me. Mm-hmm. Because if you knew, you wouldn't. So I needed you to be that person first who really liked me. And it didn't really matter that much who it was. Now, he had he had to be cute. I will say that. <laughs> but but um, other than that, he didn't have to. I mean, he did have to be employed. He had to be employed. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, and there were a, a couple of other attributes that were important. But um, other than that, my criteria was low because I just needed you to like me. And so the thought of someone who likes me then leaving, there's where the codependency came in. You know, you can't address what's going on because if you do, they might leave. Mm-hmm. So you know, that's where the victim role came in for me. And I, I look back at the first time I ever told my story in Al-Anon from the podium, and it was a story of what had happened to me. <laughs> and my, my sponsor later said, we're going to have to talk about your choices. Because <laughs> I believe you're the one making them. <laughs> How did your codependency play into those marriages? Well, I, I wouldn't leave. Uh, you wouldn't leave? I wouldn't leave. I mean, I stayed through whatever, you know. Yeah, that's uh, okay. Had, that's what I'm... Because I... I mean, first of all, you can't have a divorce because then you have to tell people you've been divorced and then no one will want you on top of the thing you've already gone through. And then mm-hmm. they really won't want you, so you can't be divorced. Right. Uh, you know, So you have to stay. And so you stay th- until it's dead. Uh, what was it? Someone said in a meeting one time, don't wait until it starts to smell. <laughs> you know? <laughs> If it's dead, get out. (laughs) That never occurred to me because I wasn't taking care of me. Mm -hmm. I was trying to make sure that you thought I was okay. Mm -hmm. That was the whole codependent thing. Well, the the victim role, I see it every day when I go to a meeting. I was probably, I was two and a half years sober. When I was speaking at the podium, I was, you know, I'm always telling you my side of the story. Not the whole truth. And that's where the victim role comes in. And it so happens, Gil was in the audience. And when I got through, he said, buddy, you're through with that. Yep. You're, you've got about enough mileage on that he, as you're going to get. He did the get. same thing with me, Rusty. Uh, and what was your deal? Well, I got up there and started my talk with, well, you know, I was an orphan child in New York. said, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'd start off with that stuff. Anyway, we got all done, and he came up to me. I didn't know him. Mm-hmm. Hardly at all. He woke up from when he yeah, goes. He would do that. That's a pathetic story. He said, I, I almost broke into tears. <laughs> you. He said, uh, hopefully that's a one and done. <laughs> one and done? Yeah. yeah. You'll, you'll move past that. And I, I didn't like him at all. Yeah. And uh, it wasn't until a while later that we actually connected. But uh, I did drop that part of my story. Yeah. Yeah. Because you well, know, you got, you got to craft your story just right, you know. Yeah. If you get bad reviews, you're not going to use it the next time. Exactly. Exactly. And you know what? When you were talking, Corinne, about not leaving, you know, all my significant relationships, my marriages and everything, I never ended them. <laughs> I would stick around until they couldn't handle it anymore. Yeah. And they'd tell me, get out of here. Yeah. Get out. Courtney, the last one. After 20-something years, you know, said to me, you need to leave now. I said, well, what do you mean now? She goes, right now. Get out. 
<laughs> yeah. Enough is enough. Yeah, because I was totally unavailable person. Right. Sober. Right. I was available to other people in many ways. I was a therapist. And that's how long these behaviors can go on within us. Oh, yeah. I was scared. I was scared to be vulnerable. Yeah, well, fear it, keeps in, us from... In the intimate relationship. I can exactly. be real vulnerable to you people. Exactly. Really easily. I can tell you all kinds of stuff. My sexual abuse, all that stuff. Right. So you can't really get out of codependency. You can't really get sober as long as you're playing that victim role. If you're alcoholic, if you're Al-Anon, if you're ACOA, I don't care what you are. Until you give up the victim role, you're going to stay stuck. There's no getting around it. I want to talk a little bit about some of those sacred rules, some more of those, in a different way. These are patterns of living in a codependent world. It's not okay to talk about problems. Feelings should not be expressed openly. Communication is best if indirect, with one person acting as a messenger between two others. In other words, triangulation. Unrealistic expectations. Be strong, be good, be right, be perfect, make us proud. Don't be selfish. Do as I say, not as I do. It's not okay to play or be playful. That's one that was really... Guilt. Yeah, Gil was, was great was, at playing. He was, the, he was the clown. Yeah, he was. Is it jester? And don't rock the boat. Now, if you rock the boat in my family of origin, there was going to be a lot of trouble. And it wasn't going to be fun. Mm -hmm. I mean, it got serious right away because these people were serious whenever I wasn't doing what I was supposed to be doing. You know the threat when you come, when you, you do something and the mother says, I'm gonna, if I tell your father, it's not going to work out very well for you. And of course, me being the kind of guy I was, I said, well, go ahead and tell him. Go ahead. And she would. And he would. And he'd chase me. <laughs> he'd catch me. But that was the threat. Okay. With you and your mom being the way that you were, did that draw you closer to your dad? Oh, heavens, yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, my, I didn't really have an emotional relationship with my mother from really from that point forward, from the time I caught her listening to my phone conversations, mm -hmm. I knew I couldn't trust her. Mm -hmm. uh, and you couldn't bring up things in my family because you didn't talk about anything uh, mm -hmm. like that. So my dad was my buddy, but he was at work, you know, and I was busy you know, at, at that point in my life. But we, we understood each other, but it, there, it wasn't like emotional incest. We just, we just knew that we saw the same thing. Mm -hmm. That's basically what it boiled yeah. down to. And he was a good guy. He was a really smart guy and interesting. But the problem that I had with it then was I wanted to hang out with the guys because they're the safe ones. Mm -hmm. uh, and I sure didn't want to hang out with the women because they're not. You know, that's just what it boiled down to for me. And it took being in recovery several years before I really got comfortable with the women there. And, you know, it's just, it's hard to resist the laughter. 
in the rooms. Mm -hmm. And it's hard to resist people telling the truth about themselves and then laughing about it. Mm -hmm. You know, it just, it takes all the sting out of Mm -hmm. trying to be a certain thing. You get to be who you really are in there. And that authenticity changed everything because my mother was all about appearances. And so it was, I could be honest with my dad to a degree. Uh, If you went past that place, then his sacred rules came into play. Mm -hmm. And his sacred rules uh, didn't line up with mine in that particular Mm -hmm. arena. When the traumatic event, because it was traumatic. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's just about as traumatic. Devastating. Yeah. Especially in the time that you were growing up. Even the town you grew up in. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. So that trauma, did, did you just take that trauma out into the world with you like that? Yes, I mean, but you would never see it mm-hmm. because appearances and approval are everything, and so is achievement. So mm-hmm. I worked really hard at everything. My achievement was always great. I got lots of honors, Rusty. Mm-hmm. Um, so I got lots of approval and things that way. So you would never know. I mean, you would never have a clue that any of that had ever happened to me or that I had any trauma because you don't ever let people know who you really are in that way. You don't talk about those things. So that was that was the hardest thing for me because I was the real me was really isolated. I was going to say you had to be carrying some shame. Oh, good God! Yes. I mean, and that's the I've carried it. So I, oh, yeah. I mean, that's got to be. I think we've, we've all carried shame. Yeah. Yeah. Your sexual abuse, my sexual. I never told anybody until I was forty years old. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I was in forty my, years. Yeah. Old. Oh, I was forty-two. I never yeah. trusted not one person but that. I was in my forties. So, mm-hmm. is that right? You were in your forties before I talked about it. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I had to tell my first sponsor because I did a fourth and fifth step with her. So I had to I had to talk about that. And the things that she said made me feel much different uh, it, because she didn't react. She had awareness. She had participated in things. And this was the lady that was the secretary of the Catholic Archdiocese in, oh, <laughs> in Little Rock. So I expected her to have a big reaction, but she did not. She completely understood. And then one of my best friends growing up told me one day when we were at lunch, we were both in recovery that she had had this traumatic thing happen to her and explained the whole scenario. And I just looked at her with disbelief. She lived like three blocks from me. I knew nothing about that. The exact same thing was happening to me three blocks away, and she didn't know anything about that. And we never talked about it, never, nothing, until until that day. And she, she said, you just don't know what happened to me. And I just looked at her and I said, the same thing happened to me. Mm-hmm. And she was just in shock. She couldn't believe it, mm-hmm. you know. So, that, yeah, you carry that stuff a long, long way. And that, that's, that doesn't weigh on me today. It no. Does, it it no. really doesn't weigh on me today. But I know that it drove a lot of the decisions I made in relationships and the mm-hmm. people I chose to be with. I know that it did. See, that's, that's the core of it. Mm-hmm. And it, with, with your sexual abuse, did you... Did that determine things for you? I didn't even know how much shame I was carrying. Mm-hmm. I, mean, I wasn't aware. I didn't either. So this is all in retrospectively, but I just, I knew something was wrong with me. That was tainted. Mm-hmm. I had this experience mm-hmm. with another man, an yes. older man, that I could not, I had no way to process that. Mm-hmm. didn't make sense. You know, I was never told by parents or anybody else that that could happen. And there it happened. I felt unprotected. 
yeah. felt like nobody would talk about it. I think they knew. I thought they knew on some level. Mm-hmm. And it was part of the family secret stuff, you know? Yeah. You know, I knew my mother. At that point, I kind of knew my mother was damaged psych- psychiatrically. She was gone a lot. Mm-hmm. She'd leave for two weeks at a time. Mm-hmm. And I remember saying, where the hell, where is mom? Well, she's in the hospital. Well, what's wrong with her? Well, she has something wrong with her stomach. Mm-hmm. That was always the thing. She had something wrong I with her that. stomach. She was in a psych hospital. Mm-hmm. She was whack. Well, I know from working with all the people that I've worked with on sexual abuse, we all react in probably, there's about probably two or three ways that we react. I was like you with that. But when I got to be 12, 13 years old and start to realize, because this happened at seven and eight, what a man's uh, sexual position was in life. Mm-hmm. And what I had done with this man down in the barn, I mean, it just... Turns the world upside down. That's when, my, that's when the shame hit me, yeah. really. Yeah. And then that propelled me into probably up until I was 30, wondering, you know, I, I never wanted to be with men, but I kept wondering, well, what am I? Am I... Yeah, yeah. So my first, you know, I was first first months of sobriety. I was with a psychiatrist, a wonderful psychiatrist, beautiful woman, and she was my inpatient psychiatrist. And mm-hmm. I stayed with her afterwards. You stayed with her? Oh yeah, weekly, sometimes more. Oh, I mean, okay. I thought maybe you st- no, no. I like would wanted to stay with her. <laughs> anyway, I ended the relationship with the woman that was living with me, who had been my secretary. She moved mm-hmm. out. I'm going to meetings morning, noon, and night, and I'm seeing this doctor and I started having intrusive dreams and memories mm-hmm. I started having them I never wow. had them before I didn't believe I knew what a, what a, a LSD flashback was but this was mm-hmm. totally different mm-hmm. it was like it was moving from here to here and I couldn't stop thinking about it and I had been to her a lot and so one day I said to her I'm having these memories, I don't, and they're real, you know, mm-hmm. but I've hidden them for a long time. And she said, can you tell me what they are? I said, not yet. Mm-hmm. And then a few weeks later, I, I made the decision. I was making it every week when I went in, but I finally said, this is what happened. Mm-hmm. And she just, she said, thank God. I knew it was something like that, but I can't ever say that up front because that would steer you in a direction. Mm-hmm. But I knew it was something like that. And I said, well, I'm glad it's out. She said, oh, no, it's not out yet. Mm-hmm. You just indicated what has to come out. And now you have to talk about it. And I went, oh, oh man. Well, the shame, was, the shame was huge. Every session after that was a huge session. And uh, it made, that's made it to my fifth step. Well, that's, to me, just another example of what a person can do when they are willing to work the, the problem of Alcoholics Anonymous, uh, along with seeing a therapist. He says course, in the book that most of us will get professional help. Yeah, because, it says that, right. Because, you know, like, like to talk about yeah. my, my, my family, it wasn't my family, it was an ordeal. It was just an ordeal. I was in an unsafe place with people that were unsafe to me, and they looked really good outside. And what happened inside my family was an ordeal. What happened out there was a travesty. Mm -hmm. You have to go through that, though. Anger was the biggest thing for me. 
I do want to talk about the difference in healthy interdependency and codependency. Now, I'm going to read you a little, just a brief paragraph on healthy interdependency. It says, partners who go out of their way for each other are interdependent. Only relatively healthy people are capable of interdependent relationships, which evolve into to give and take. It is not unhealthy to unilaterally give during a time when your partner is having difficulty. You know your partner will reciprocate should the tables turn. For me, the greatest example I've had was when my wife, Julianne, got cancer. I was able to, to be there for her. And I tell you, it was, I'd never done anything like that before because I'm so self-centered. It was really, really hard on me. And I had to look at that and, and say, you know, what, what is it? Well, it's just sometimes I just didn't want to do it. Sure. That's the truth. But my love for her and my commitment to her, because her being my wife, I never committed like that. It changed everything for me in, in that relationship. So that interdependency also implies that you do not have to give until it hurts. By comparison, in a codependent relationship, one partner does almost all the giving while the other does almost all the taking, almost all the time. Mm -hmm. And that's the kind of relationships and marriages I had prior to, to this last marriage. They were always doing for me. The world revolved around Rusty, and it has totally changed. Mm -hmm. And that's all the benefits of doing the work that all of us have done. Corinne, would you like to say something in closing? Sure, I'll say something about interdependence particularly okay. because I, that was something I had never had. I had seen people that had it, but and I wanted it, but I had never had it. Of course, I didn't make really great choices in partners. <laughs> Their capability of being interdependent was about zero. <laughs> Mine wasn't much better. But I have that today. And I will tell you how much it meant to me to know that Merlin was in recovery before we got together. Mm. Because I knew that he had done a tremendous amount of work. And I don't mean just going to meetings. I mean work on himself. I mean, he had done the therapy, he had done all kinds of things. And so the, the platform was there. It made all the difference that we both had gotten skills that allowed us to be interdependent and yet be able to stand on our own two feet no matter what. Because I don't have that fear of loss anymore. I, I, have, a, I have a life, I have a community, I have friends, I have all kinds of things, and if something happens to Merlin, I will miss him like I can't even imagine, mm. but I'll be okay. Yeah. You know, that's the thing. I have people today. I didn't have people before. It makes a big, big difference, and I think he and I do a good job of stepping forward and stepping back in situations like that. Thank you. Well, I have uh, way more experience in a codependent relationship than an interdependent. Mm -hmm. Although with my last wife, we we're together the longest of all the women. And she was definitely a fixer. She would want to fix everything, whether you wanted her to fix it or not. She was right there with her solution to your problem. Mm -hmm. And she was right all the time, unless she wasn't, and then that kind of faded away. But since we have been separate, and for four years now, we've had a way better relationship. 
because I've been better at being there. And she's needed me to be there at times. She's had her, her issues, especially around our, our son. He's a, a perfectionist person. And she's always been there for me. She always has. At the hospital when I was in there for all that time, you know, she's not my wife anymore. She was running things because she knows how to run things better than I do. When she kicked me out, she helped me find the house I bought, you know, helped me buy a house and decorated it. So I understand the interdependent, you know, that where there's the give and take. But my experience with it in intimate relationship is not extensive at all. It's I'm still I'm still a work in progress. And when I joked about my future ex-wife, I'm not looking to get married again. If I was going to marry again, I'd marry Courtney again. That's nice to know. Anyway. Well, thank you both for being here today. I really appreciate the time that you spent. Uh, and we'll see you next time. This has been a production of childrenofchaos.net, and we invite you to share your thoughts with us via email to comments at childrenofchaos.net. Children of Chaos is a forum to discuss topics related to and in concert with addiction and recovery in America, is not affiliated with, endorsed, or financed by any recovery or treatment program, organization, or institution. Any views, thoughts, or opinions expressed by an individual in this venue are solely that of the individual and do not reflect the views, policies, or position of any specific recovery-based entity or organization.